Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. One of the more difficult topics for many families these days has to do with media use. We are a tech-heavy society, and that extends downwards to our kids. It's not uncommon to go out and see parents handing over screens to their kids to get through a dinner, a car ride, a boring appointment, and so on. At home, kids spend hours in front of screens for school, to be social, to play games, and more. When parents try to understand the effects of this screen time, they're often met with tons of different information. Some makes it out that we're damaging our children for life. Others say it's just the way of the future. So which is it? Joining me this week is Dr. Megan Owens, researcher and founder of Screen-Free Parenting. She sifts through the research so you can get a better idea of the nuances in the findings, but also helps highlight ways families can move away from the dependence so many of us, myself included, have on our technology. As is so often the case, the reality is far more interesting than what we have been fed in the mainstream. I am so pleased to have with me today Dr. Megan Owens. She is an author, a parent, a counseling psychologist, and a professor at Penn State University. She's the co-founder and writer of the popular parenting website, Screen Free Parenting. She's a regular speaker on the topic of children's screen time and uses her expertise to advocate for science-backed changes to policies and practices that affect children's well-being. She also created the board game Starting Lines to fight creative decline and reward children's out-of-the-box thinking. She lives in Pennsylvania with her husband and two children who are thriving with very limited screen time. Thank you so much for being here today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Now, I realize I should have mentioned here that you also have a couple books, uh, one of which is the new one, Spoiled Right, that we're really kind of going to get into today. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. author researcher, clinician, and somehow you have time. I guess it's because there's no screens, right? So you have... <laughs> I don't know. I feel like every other parent. I, I don't have enough time ever. <laughs> right? I know. It just doesn't exist. Well, we're going to talk about your research. We're going to talk some about some of these ideas around screen time, this idea of spoiling kids, quote unquote, right, which is a the whole theory there. But um, before we even get into that, I am curious how you got into the topic of researching screen time kind of broadly in the effects on children in your research? Like, how did this become your passion? Yeah, so I was a uh, goal researcher. So I researched the types of goals that people had and how different types of goals are differentially related to different types of well-being, right? So, um, you know, did people have approach goals, things they were moving towards, or avoidance goals? Um, did they have shared goals that they, you know, had in common with other people that they worked on together? Like parenting is a shared goal. Justice is a shared goal, right? Um, or did they have, were they more individually oriented in their goals? Um, were their goals inherently sort of meaningful? So they were constitutive goals, right? Like the, the act of trying to engage or, or reach this end constituted the end in and of itself, kind of like parenting, Right. Um, or were they very instrumental in how they approached their goals um, in terms of, you know, like an instrumental goal, it means, you know, I can do whatever to try to get to my end. Like my daughter needs to be picked up at 4.30. I could get her, my husband could get her, the neighbor could get her, you know, I'm just going to implement something to get that goal. And I felt as it became apparent that this framework, this different way of thinking about goals applied itself really well to parenting in general um, and I've done some work around that, but also specifically to screen time, because I think 
the way that we have gone about kids screen time. And when I say we, I mean like professionals who are trying to um, give parents, you know, quote unquote advice about screen time, the way that we've gone about it totally stands in the face of the science of what works um, in, in terms of behavior change for people. Right. So like avoidance goals are just awful. Like if I tell you don't eat a donut, you just want to eat a donut. Right? And so Thanks, we tell no, I want to eat a donut. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we tell parents like no more screen time. They tell their kids that. And now everybody just is thinking about screen time all the time. Right. Um, so it just wasn't a helpful framework, I think, in terms of how it was being most commonly presented. I love that. And actually, it's so true. I often use oddly dieting as an example with families, not about screen time, actually. That's not a topic that I often talk about, but usually in terms of, you know, discipline or something else where the more we say to someone, you can't have something, well, all you want is that. That's it. So working with, you know, what's underneath it and other ways to approach things is more successful typically when when we get to that. So I I'm 100% on board with that, even though I haven't always been able to apply it with donuts and dieting. But um, so as we get into this, and I think this actually segues into what you're saying about these limitations and the research, but this topic is really hard for some parents. And I'll include myself in that because we're in a tech-heavy society. We're in a tech-heavy household. Uh, Many of us have been trying to balance isolation, work, parenting. And I think something you alluded to uh, on your site that I saw that I appreciated. And I know I felt it in the last couple of years in particular, those of us that had a great balance with technology, it's kind of gone out the window in for so many. And I think it causes a lot of anxiety because when we hear the research and we hear, you know, especially these avoidance goals, don't do it, cut it out, stop this. It, it makes us feel like shit, right? There's a point at which you're like, we have done something wrong. Are we forever damaging our kids? What are we doing? So before we even get to the research and everything, can you talk a bit about what, is it too late? Have we done irreparable damage at this time? You know, is it something that we can change? Does it have to be dramatically changed right away? What kind of guidance can parents, you know, take and what kind of level of guilt do they need to have over what's happened, especially in the last two years, or even if it's not the last two years, if they've just been a tech heavy house, because that's how life has gotten on. Um, what What is the reality here with respect to some of the dire outcomes we sometimes hear? So I'm going to start real broad here um, and talk about the science of neuroplasticity, um, which really demonstrates that um, our brains are constantly changing based on, you know, the experiences we're having in our environment. Thank God, even through adulthood, because I'm still a work in progress and I have some things I'm working on. Um, And so research shows this with all sorts of things. Um, One of the areas that's been studied pretty heavily is meditation and how we can see structural differences in the brain when people meditate daily for as short as six to eight weeks, right? So we can like actually see what's happening there. So the same thing is studied with screen time in terms of how screen time and other, all sorts of things, you know, what is what we're doing? How is that impacting our biology or our brains in this case and studying um, children and adults under MRIs? And then real basic research shows they took teenagers 
um, and had them try to, you know, recognize emotions in other people. And, and they were like, moderately okay at it. Um, and then they, they randomized them and, and, you know, a group just went on with life for five days, um, with a lot of screen time in there, um, was, you know, sort of the, the hypothesis of the researchers behind this. And the other group just spent five days at a screen free camp with other kids. Um, and then they tested them on the same thing, emotional recognition and, and like empathy and that sort of stuff at the end of camp. And the kids at the end of camp were significantly different. And this is five days, right? So your kids are going to be very responsive to if you feel like you need to make some changes um, or maybe even everything's going great, but there's just this like one little piece, right? Um, I want parents to feel really empowered that, you know, the, your kid is a different person every single day. Um, and, and it's okay to go back and make changes. And I do it all the time where I'm like, oh, shoot, that was not a good thing we were doing, right? And like, I need, I need to wrap that up and I need to change that. Um, you know, whether it's sleep or it's food or it's how we're disciplining or, you know, whatever, right? I love that. And that's it, so good to hear. I actually did not know that study. And the fact that five days there was a difference. It's, it's really reassuring. And, you know, it does mirror some of the things I think we see, because I know I can look at my own kids and say, there are times that, you know, they may have had more screens or more junk food or, you know, and I include diet in this too, where we see a shift in behavior that's linked, you know, almost day to day, you can almost see this kind of fluctuation happen in response to the environment they're in just because I guess this is that neuroplasticity that is enabling them to really pick up time and again. So I hope that for parents listening, I don't want people shutting off right away because they're like, I don't want to hear this. I can't do it. You know, this is just whatever it is. It's too hard. I want people to realize that we are talking about something that we can work towards. And I think even fairly, if I can ask, work towards slowly, that even small changes can have larger effects. Is that fair to say, or am I kind of putting words into the research here? No, 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 no. That's definitely fair to say. I mean, in my opinion, five days is, is a pretty small change, right? Like those kids probably went back to regular life after that. Now you could extend that by just as the parent knowing you took a break on vacation and then having a conversation about maybe how you want things to be different, you know, and, and thinking about that relationship. But yes, you don't have to make enormous changes. And I wouldn't recommend that, especially with older kids, um, nor do you have to even talk about screen time directly. Um, and so we can talk more about that as, as we get into it. But I think especially with our older kids, there's ways to have this conversation that have nothing to do with screen time, because the screen time might not actually be the problem. It's sort of the other stuff that's losing out. And that's kind of the spoiled right concept coming in is what goes in. But it is good, because I know, you know, for me, I'm, no matter what area of life it is, I'm one of those people that needs to take these really tiny steps. If I think it's too big a step, I just, I shut down, I get nope, I can't do this. So if I look at my kid and say, we need to, you know, cut screen time in half, even that can feel like, Oh, we can't. I'm, I'm nope. I'm just going to stick my head in the sand. I don't care. I'm not doing this. As opposed to, I think, as you say, these other approaches, or even saying, nope, we're going to cut half an hour out. And as we'll get to, possibly replace it with something else and then mm -hmm. slowly make those habits change. So, okay, with that foundation being laid, we do have to talk about the research on screen time. And in particular, I don't want to get into the, the dire 
oh my God, it's horrible. And our children are all going to be ruined forever because I think as you and I both know, and as you've talked about, that's not really what we're seeing. But there are a lot of kind of take-home messages and there are nuances around the data on screen time and, and, and children and outcomes is what I'm talking about here, not adults or whatnot. So if we were to hone in on kind of the key take-home messages on screen time in kids, what would you think that's what, what parents need to know if we're focusing on just kind of the big messages? Yeah. So I really like acronyms because I think it makes it easier to, to, to get the information out there. So for the research on um, our littler kids, I use the acronym SWAT, so for so under fives, to stand for sleep, weight, attention, aggression, and talking or language acquisition. Um, so little kids or teenagers, sleep is something that might be the first domino um, of all the other negative associations we see with screen time, right? So for example, we see with, with little kids, some associations in between fast paced media and their capacity for sustained attention, but it's probably somewhat being influenced by the sleep thing. So if the kids are getting less sleep, I can't focus when I don't have enough sleep, right? So like that's sort of the first domino, um, you know, is that, you know, children, especially if they have um, a lot of screen time late at night, they can have more difficulty regulating their sleep-wake cycles. They go to bed later and they have a shorter total duration of sleep because kids wake up at dawn, no matter when you put them to bed, right? You know, or, or some kids do, some kids do, right? Um, weight has a couple of pathways. You know, we want to be careful how making sure that our kids can move as much as they want to. Um, and often screen time is sedentary. Um, that when they're eating, they're eating because they feel hungry and they're stopping when they feel full. Um, and if they're eating in front of a screen, sometimes that cuts them off from their internal cues. So that's some of the ways in which weight is impacted. Um, Attention, the idea really there is that some of our programming and games for little kids is really, really fast paced. And when they have a lot of that, um, they have difficulty paying attention in a slower paced environment, like a teacher at the front of the room or having to tie their shoes, like these things that are, you know, require the sustained attention. It's just not entertaining. Like people are not popping up in front of me and singing about it. Right. Um, and so that can look like attention issues. Aggression is about content. We're going to be really careful, especially with kids under eight. Um, that, you know, if, if you're showing them content and that has violence in it, they're probably going to try that out. Um, and that's just how kids learn and they model. Um, and then talking when we're talking about kids, you know, under three, under two, um, the research is, is pretty clearly showing that they learn from hearing caregivers talk. And when a screen is on, caregivers are talking less. Um, and it just doesn't replace it, that there's the back and forth is not there. There's no triangulated attention. And so they don't learn language as well if they have are using a device a lot. And for all of these outcomes, I'm, usually the research is pointing out like two hours or more, right? Um, so we're, we're not talking about like the 20 minute video chat they had with grandma yesterday or something. You don't have to worry about, you know, sleep or attention related to that. So... It sounds to me, and I think one of the things you brought up that I would kind of like to to hone in on a bit more here is, so it's not the inherent badness of it. It's kind of these, you know, and, and there may be the effects on on sleep and others, but even just, I think, you know, thinking about content, what are they watching? And you talk in your book too about um, 
I know one of your recommendations, I'm just going to jump to it and you don't have to explain it yet. But in terms of this is, you know, a family movie night, which I think many of us could say, wait a second, that is screen time, but is something like watching with others is what are these kind of caveats to how our kids consume media in place in the research? Have we even looked at a lot of these distinctions between what they watch, who they watch with, um, what kind of device it is? I mean, I even think about my own kids watching a TV in a room that's up on a wall. They're often doing a bunch of other stuff while it's like, like it's on and they're watching, but they're tickling us or playing or grabbing blocks or magnets. And there's kind of a, it's there and it's engaging versus a phone or a tablet where it's right in front of them and there's less engagement around. Have we looked at these kind of distinctions in the research? Yeah, yeah. And so one of the things that I want to speak to that you're talking about is persuasive design, um, which is, you know, the idea that there's teams of behavioral scientists and psychologists who have worked really hard to make the devices themselves, um, as well as the applications, programming and games on the devices, very, very difficult for your child to turn off. So if your kid throws a temper tantrum when you take it away, and then you end up yelling and then everybody is freaking out. That's exactly what it was designed to do. <laughs> like that is, that was the end goal was to make, and there's a lot of complex ways in which we, you know, we use the same, the same science for gambling, like near misses and video games have been used to make the programs really persuasively designed so your kid does not want to turn them off and go use somebody else's program. They want to stick with this one for as long as possible. Um, you know, and that, allows them to increase ad revenue and, and all those sorts of things. And so take a breath, you know, if your kid is one who throws a temper tantrum when you turn it off, or if you're one who thinks I don't have the fight in me today to turn it off. I actually, and I want to get into more of the different types, but I think you just nailed on a question I had, which is, and I'm sure it's something you've seen too, but kind of the difference for those of us that are older, you know, I watch TV. I, I watched a lot of TV, but I was at university when I got my first cell phone? Well, they, they didn't. It's not like, well, that's when I got my first. They weren't there before that. So it is, I didn't grow up with that media. It wasn't something, and we've embraced it in many ways. I mean, we're sitting here doing this call over a screen and everything, but is, you know, for so many of us, how much are we not getting about the difference between media of old to age ourselves and today's media for kids. Yeah. Yeah. And when you got that cell phone in college, like I did, you had to press, you know, the number two key three times to get to the ladder you wanted. Right. Like, so it was just like, it was not that rewarding. Oh God, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> yes. You wrote the shortest messages ever because after two minutes, you're like, all right, all you get is high. That's all I have time yeah. for today. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because it took so long. Um, yes, so the media is much more persuasively designed now. Um, and there's a lot of things that go into that, you know, like intermittent rewards, um, automatic play, which we should not have on any program designed for kids. Um, but even if we got rid of automatic play, you know, you know, if you've binge watched a TV show, that the natural arc of the show is such that the new storyline begins in the middle of the next episode. So you would never stop at the end of an episode because they're, they're actually dividing the episodes 
in a fashion that it is so unsatisfying, right? Um, and so kids are more susceptible to this and they don't understand this. Um, and so they can't fight it, you know, and adults have a hard time fighting it. So that's one of the ways in which it's different. For little kids, little kids are responsive to physical boundaries that they can understand, right? So when I was a kid, the TV was at home and I couldn't, mom couldn't produce it at the store, right? <laughs> so like, I knew that, like it wasn't with me and like, I couldn't take it to the toilet with me. And like, it just like, you know, it, it, I was with it or I wasn't with it. Um, and so for little kids, that's so much easier to understand. We also, all of that era grew up knowing that programming was on for a certain time for us. And it just wasn't after that. Like if you tried to stay up late, it was infomercials. And if you watched afternoon on Saturday, it switched to something that was totally uninteresting. So you eventually went outside. You know, it's funny. It's like, I swear I go back to my stepson who's older and didn't have all this too. And we remember the dentist was one of the first people to get the TVs above where they were playing kids programming on tapes and stuff to go. But it was like, it was the most genius idea because the one place they don't want to go was the dentist. And now it became the place to go because they could go and watch screens staring up at stuff. So they used it for that as a way to bring people in. And I hadn't even thought about it in that sense that, yeah, elsewhere they couldn't. Whereas that now made it appealing to go do something that they otherwise would not have wanted to do. Right. And the problem is that now kids have that everywhere. Um, you know, so they have it at the grocery store and they have to wait in line. They have it at the pediatrician's office and the dentist's office and the eye doctor and, and you know, every which way. Um, anytime we don't, we're asking them to do something they don't want to do. They have it. Um, and that, regardless of content, like even if they're watching like the most amazing nature documentary where they like learn to be a social justice warrior or something, you know, that is problematic because we learn how to deal with our emotions by having all these tiny little incremental doses to stuff happening that we don't like, right? Um, and we, when we're kids, we cry and we yell about it, but like mom's in the shower, like she's covered in soap, like you're just gonna have, and you deal with it and you're okay, right? Um, and so when we don't give, when our children don't have the opportunity for little doses of dealing with things they don't like, then that becomes a child who has issues with emotion regulation just because they haven't had the chance to learn it. And again, going back to what we said at the beginning though, it's something they can learn yeah. given the exposures. It's not a one and done, you don't have it by three and you're finished. As we all know, anyone who knows my work, emotion regulation is very ongoing into, you know, well, into our 40s, I would argue is still going on and probably later, but it is a constant work in progress that kids need to have this. So with that, it really seems like a lot of what you're touching on, going back to this issue of the different types of media, because I really want to hone in on kind of there's to me, there's kind of four buckets of media. Maybe I'll say five. I usually start this and I have four in my head, then one pops in. But you have kind of your old school TV, movies. We put on a DVD. I, well, most people don't anymore. I still like my DVDs. We have a whole collection. We're old school that way um, that you throw on. You have your screens that are tablets, phones, et cetera, in front of you. And in that, um, you also have and I guess computers, kind of more portable screens. And in that, you also have a mix of um, watching media. You've got your Netflix, your YouTube, your this or that, um, as it, whatever. I know there's like Crave and Disney Plus and 8 million different ones. So you have those. 
you have, um, and I would even actually specify breaking out something like YouTube, which is again, because you mentioned that short, rapid attention span where you're watching typically, you know, short five minute videos versus a 30 minute show. You have uh, games that kids can play. And on that, you may also get to like Nintendo Switch, you have Minecraft, you have, um, I don't, I don't plants versus zombies. I liked that one. Um, all this stuff, you have your games that you're playing. And then you have the more social element of it. You have your Zoom, you have your um, FaceTime, you have all these things that really were using technology in a way to connect with other people. So when we look across these different types, I mean, if we had to rank them, I mean, what are we thinking? And and I asked to rank simply because I think going back again to that issue of these slow changes that help people, I think sometimes it's nice to say, okay, I don't have to stop everything. I don't even have to think about it. But if I'm going to target the worst, what is the worst? Yeah. Um, I'll say what is the best too, um, because I think positive goals are the way to go. So like, what can you like Sorry, really- I think of the order here of like, can yeah. we just rank them all? Give me in order, top to bottom, how do they go? So, um, you know, if you're having a conversation with your kids or your partner of what can we really lean into? Like, what do we really like and what's good? Um, video chatting is great. Um, and, you know, anytime, even for a baby, it's not problematic um, because they're having a live response. OK, so if they're talking to grandparents or aunts or uncles or people across the country on video chat or they were doing it during the pandemic, contrary to Dora, the explorer who stands there and waits for you to respond while blinking, like the baby knows the difference. Right. So the baby knows when grandma responds by saying, cup, yes, you have a cup. Right. And it's actual live and it's happening. Um, so, you know, you don't need to worry about cutting the kids off from any kind of um, video chatting, Zooming, whatever they're using to, to do that. Um, I, I also am a fan of the more social uses, including text messaging or those sorts of things um, among friends. You know, that's what teenagers are going to do. That's how they're going to communicate. Um, and you spent probably three hours on the phone every night. Um, and some of it, you weren't even talking. You're just like breathing next to each other. And like, that's what they're doing with text messages. Um, you know, I do think there are some really great programs that can prevent the kids from using um, text messaging inappropriately. Uh, for example, I'd prefer a teenager be text messaging one person rather than a group. Um, you know, that's where um, teens, especially our young teens can kind of get themselves into some trouble. There's also applications and phones that will prevent them from sending you know, pictures, you know, so if you really just, you know, want them to be able to communicate with their friends, but you don't want them to get in any of those dicey situations, we, we actually have the tech to support that, um, which is great. So I think that's the best, right? That's the best use of tech is like facilitating social relationships um, from baby to teen. This is just my opinion, uh, but the worst is user generated content like YouTube, because especially for little kids, it, it is looping and feeding them um, things based on their what they're watching that is not necessarily the algorithm is not what you want them to watch. Um, and it's just effing endless, you know, <laughs> like 
it never ends. They know it never ends. There's like 20 on the side. There's more there. Like they will never get to the end of that. They'll never finish it. No, um, exactly. So- it is. And what passes, I would even say there's, speaking about the apps, I mean, I know there's content filters and everything, but they're not necessarily the greatest. And I found even on, you know, my phone when I have tried, I I can't set it on mine. Like I actually just the other day deleted YouTube off my phone so that I'm like, really, if I need to watch a how-to video, which are great on YouTube, I will give them that, I can go to my laptop and do that. That's how that's going to happen because it's just almost impossible. Yeah. So don't get into any kind of, you know, like rough neighborhood of media that like you have to do all this stuff to make it reasonable for your kid. Like we've got to walk with pepper spray and lock our doors and do like, you know, like what, like if you have to do a million different things to make this acceptable for your kid and you have to be over their shoulder, that that's not appropriate, right? Like it's just, it's too hard for you. It shouldn't be that hard. And it was designed to be hard for you. Um, and they, they did not design it with parents in mind. And so, you know, take your dollars elsewhere, um, you know, because there is, I also think a good use of media is anything that you're doing as a family together. Okay. So I, I tend to like big screens better than little screens. Um, research shows like even little kids, as soon as they get their hands on a device, they use this hunched over huddle that like totally boxes the parent out. So the parent can't even like co-watch and talk to them about it because like they have learned by 18 months, like this is just for one person and get out of my way. So when you talk about the shared um, activity, so I guess that kind of splits up even like there's co-watching and there's co-playing if we're thinking about games. So, you know, you think about something like I'm, I'm just... I, I do not know all the systems out there. I apologize for people that are probably know all this and rolling their eyes, but we have a Nintendo Switch. That's the one we have and we play it together. It's it's an it's a social thing. No one ever gets on it alone. So that's what you're talking about in terms of co-playing. Like it's not like the that's online another thing. realm of gaming, like where the kids might be playing with others online, right? You're, we're differentiating that correct? Yeah. We're differentiating when people are physically present in the same room using the same screen. Right. Um, you know, and it's, it's just so much easier to manage as a parent also, if it's not an internet based game, right. If it's like a physical thing, (laughs) you know, like we're used to from our parent, like it has like, I put the game in and I have the game system. And so I can also take the game system away. Like if we need to for a period of time or whatever, you know, that's just like so much easier to manage. And I think anything you're doing together as a family, that's another like lean and hard, you know, like it's not that we can't have any screens, right? You can have family movie night, family game night, you can video chat with grandma, like those social, you're using it to facilitate social relationships, or you're using it together as a family. Um, There's been a fair amount of research to show that if the parent is there doing what, you know, we call parental monitoring, which basically means you're still limiting the content because you're right there. So like, you know, if the content's inappropriate, um, you're limiting the time because you're there and like your time is limited um, and you're discussing the content, right? So it doesn't mean that you never watch something that's a little like, because uh, if you did, like, tell me what it was, because it's just like, I can't find that content. Um, you know, there's always like a little, uh, but you're talking about it either during it or after when you go for a walk or you eat dinner together or whatever. Um, you know, that is, is really helpful for kids. They see things in our world all the time that they need help interpreting. 
and media is no different. So if you're you're putting in the time to do it together, um, you you can lean in hard to that, and that's not something you need to to take away or worry about. That's a really interesting point about the discussions because I will just say from my own experience, but also talking to families, it's really amazing how when you do open up the door to those discussions, as opposed to oh my god, you can't be watching that, just shut it off. It has a cascading effect in the rest of your interactions because you become someone they can talk to about stuff. They can be calm and say, you know, I saw this and it was weird because you've said, oh, I just heard someone say, fuck. And, you know, <laughs> let, let's talk about using that with other people. Let's talk about what that means. And as long as you can stay calm in the conversation and have it. But it really does open you up as a source of knowledge and information and um, support as they face other things that they have questions about. So what about what we would term the more educational types of media? Like a lot of these are solo player games that kids play, but there is an educational focus. So I think about, you know, there's the site, I don't know if it's big there, but ABC Yeah, which is you know, education, it's in classrooms, it's everywhere where kids get access to these games that are ostensibly helping certain skills, whatever they may be, you know, reading, math, um, science, biology, kind of this game framework of learning. And I would say that many of the other individual games kids can learn from as well, if they're taking in um, they see a game they're interested in, they learn to read kind of because they want to know what's being said at the bottom there. But how do those measure up when we see them? Is it just about the quantity of use? Are they, how do we gauge this? Because, and, and I ask mainly because I think a lot of families here lean into the, the shared media time, which is great. But there are those times you want to take a shower or cook something or just sit down and not deal with the tantrum, the this, the that, and you want that moment. And in an ideal world, six months from now, you've worked towards it and you can have it without the screen. But in moments, especially while people are taking baby steps or just want to know what is okay with respect to this, what is kind of the guidance on those educational type things? Oh, this is where it's so hard because the media landscape is so unregulated and so not designed with families and parents in mind. Um, so what is categorized as educational? And I go into this in you know, greater detail in the book. Um, it just means like they tagged it that way and it doesn't necessarily have to be educational at all. You know, no one is regulating that. Um, and just because it has some colors and some shapes in it also doesn't mean it's educational. You know, nobody has, it doesn't mean that, it, that an education specialist or, or um, a psychologist or a developmental psychologist or anybody looked at that and said like, yes, that is appropriate for this age range that we're targeting. Um, and that leaves so much up to the parents to try to figure out. Um, I would say there's not a lot of truly educational media for under three, very little for under five. Um, and then once they start to get to be school aged, you're school's probably giving it to them anyways, and you don't have a whole lot of control over it. But a lot of what an under five-year-old needs to develop educationally is the ability to control their impulses, sustain their attention, engage in multi-step problem solving, um, all those things. And 
the research really strongly supports that play is how children develop those abilities. One of my favorite research studies is when they had three-year-olds, they asked them to stand still. And if you have a three-year-old at home, they lasted like negative 10 seconds or something, you know? Um, and, then, and then they asked them the same kids, they said, stand still because you are a guard for a castle and you have to stand perfectly still and look out over the landscape and make sure that no one is coming. They gave them this play scheme and they stood still four times as long, which was still probably like three seconds. But, you know, the point is that that is developing the neural pathways when we're talking about neuroplasticity for the ability to control their impulses to move, to sustain their their um, attention, to do when they do role playing, their perspective taking, right, which is really important when they get into a classroom later on. And so my, I'm not giving a great answer, except to say a lot of the things that you want in under five to develop, they're gonna develop a little bit easier without the screen through play. Um, and even, even writing and things that, you know, there is still a strong connection. Even when you look at college students who've been raised with this their whole life, they still learn better if they write as opposed to type. Um, and so we wanna kind of get that foundational stuff in there first. Yeah. Okay. Which is really interesting to know because I know, you know, again, I remember reading the same stuff that most shows are not educational. There's very few. I was very lucky. My daughter, when she was younger, really took to Blue's Clues, which I know mm -hmm. is one of the few that does pop up as, and it was a host of, of psychologists and educational consultants and everything helping it. And hence it was the same episode five days in a row that they could watch because that repetition of building and learning and picking up new steps each time by the end, they were better at getting at it than, you know, day one. But it's, it's very frustrating. I will just say this, and I, I want to get to your spoil system, because that is, I think, the, the essence of how change happens. But I will just vocalize that it's really frustrating as a parent to hear the research, to read it. I read it as well, and not as much as you do by any stretch of the imagination, but to see how little families have been considered. And, and not just they're not considered, they're preyed upon for it. It mm -hmm. is, it almost feels like, hey, we're taking all your vulnerabilities. We know you're tired. We know you want to take a shower. We know the thought of one more person yelling at you at 7 p.m. is the last thing you need. So we're handing you this little blue pill. And if you take it, all your problems will go away. Is It feels like that's what the industry has done. Um, yeah, and I want to also comment on what you're saying about Blue's Clues, because I, I wish I would have answered that way, Tracy, in that if you have an under five and you need something, I recommend a television program like that that is designed with kids in mind over a game. Um, because a lot of the, the, quote, educational games for our under fives are persuasively designed. Like they just they're getting like jewels and co coins and they want like the in-app purchases. And it's just like it's pure junk. Um, but they're obsessed with it because they've got their number um, and they know how to make them obsessed with it. But there's several, you know, well-researched um, TV shows for like the two to five-year-old set. Blue's Clues, uh, Dora the Explorer, Sesame Street, Daniel Tiger, um, that are, you know, that research shows kids can learn from. They were designed with them in mind. You can get them. I'm a huge fan of DVDs because, you know, they start and they stop and it's like a physical thing. Um, and it's just easier for your little kid to understand. But I think if you're feeling like I really need something, that's a better way to go for, for a little kid. 
I love that. That's yeah, and I'd forgotten about some of the others because it just wasn't kind of our our time frame. But yeah, they are. And you know, I know people talk. I'm just going to go back to the DVD thing. I love physical media. I, I've said it already. You're saying it, but I will say even for our kids, and it was true. One of the great things, and we have a bunch of Blues Clues DVDs still that I, you know, will just hold on to for grandkids. Hopefully, fingers crossed. But it really is, you know, you put it in. You either pick one. Um, some of them let you do play all. Which, if you want to do play all, it may not be for. It depends on how many are on there. But I know my Blues Clues had a total of four episodes, and without commercials, everything you're clocking in at twenty minutes. So yes, it's over an hour. But I will say, part of what we had with that is I was writing my dissertation at the time, and to get eighty minutes of okay, I'm sitting, I'm writing, I'm doing, is essential. And there's no. And then again, as you said. The disc ends, it ends. That's it. It doesn't start up again. It doesn't replay, um, which is really nice. It helps, that it helps your kid understand too. Like the disc is at home. So yes. if, if that's how you introduce media, there are boundaries around it. It's just so much easier for them to wrap their beautiful little brains around. Whereas if we pop it in, in an iPad or a phone that we have with us, they are going to they know you have that with you. So like, why, why can't I have it right now? Versus, you know, that, that was at home, you know, blues clues is at home, maybe later. It's like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. They may still temper tantrum, but like, it's just, it works a lot better. It makes a lot more sense to them. Well, and this is something I always talk about with respect to discipline more generally, but if you are not the source of the distress, you're better able to be the source of comfort. If it's not me saying, no, I'm not giving it to you, then suddenly it's, yeah, that really sucks. It's not at home, but you know, it, or it's, it's not here. We can do this. Or, you know, I will sometimes, my kids do use phones and whatnot, but we have timers on it. That's some of the app controls that I really do like is I'm able to set your limit for the day. I'm able to set a bed timer. So even if you haven't hit your limit, you get up and it turns off and it just shuts off. And, you know, at first it was a little difficult when we switched over to that. But when we started doing it, it was amazing how quickly, you know, my, my son in particular, who's six, was just like, oh, my phone says it's done for the day. Here you go. And would just put it to the side. It's an old phone that we had that doesn't have much, but that's what he uses. And it was great. And so they really do take this kind of idea of natural consequences of things not being available at times. And they don't, though I haven't found at least the big temper tantrum because the temper tantrums are often geared at us in an attempt to change our decision. This isn't, and I, that's why classify a temper tantrum different from like a meltdown where you're just overwhelmed and emotional meltdowns can happen but when it's geared at you it's usually because you're the one who's been like no no more and I think that's what parents struggle with so much is there's this vitriol coming at you and this is what you know we're trying to combat so I will say to everyone physical media it's really really helpful if you can get it and use it so and if not using apps or anything that helps you set it up. So again, I know some of the apps do allow you to shut off autoplay, shut off autoplay, shut off other things yeah. so that it just stops. And I don't know what your library system is like up there. I say like up there, that's how I envision. In Canada, I know. <laughs> yeah. Way up north. There we go. But, but you know, down here, like DVD, children's DVDs and books on CD 
are things that you can get easily from the library. Um, and so it makes it you know, more accessible. You're not spending a ton of money. They understand they have to take care of it um, you know, because it goes back to the library at a certain time. Um, and so that's, that's another great way. Anything that you can kind of have some physical boundaries around that you could understand, hey, if I was a three-year-old, I would get this, right? This would make sense to me. I like that. Okay. So this actually brings me to the spoil system. And, you know, one of the things we're going to go into the spoil system because this is spoiling, right? And it is the things our kids need. I'm hoping that as we talk about these, we can kind of work in a bit of the last two years of COVID, which I think has really seen the rise of screen time and probably the reduction in, in, in some cases through no fault of parents whatsoever, of some of these areas that are really needed for kids. Um, because, and why screens have replaced them. I think I always want to give the big understanding that screens replace things because at times it really feels like we don't have a lot else. And when we're in the midst of a global pandemic and our mental health is all suffering and we're stressed, we look for that easy easy way out. It's not even easy. I think it's just, it's available. Like we said, they handed us the the blue pill. I know I took it for over this time that my kids' screen use has gone up um, with everything. And it's something we're starting to grapple back down with. But we certainly have seen a rise. And it's been, we can see the response that we're tired, we're stressed, we're done. And there's way more hours in the day that we're not able to do some of these things. So Let's go into the spoil system, what it's about, what are these buckets, and let's talk about them a bit one by one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to talk about dieting first because you like dieting metaphors and I love them. One of my favorite research studies is they took families with one obese parent and they randomized them into two groups. They had one group was given information on cutting high fat, high sugar foods from their diet. Um, and then the other group was given information on increasing their fruit and vegetable intake and all the way they could do that. And they followed them for a year. And the families who got the fruit and vegetable information lost more weight, ate more fruits and vegetables, and cut high fat, high sugar foods. But they did it without being told to. They did it because these, you know, this moving towards something fun and positive kind of edged out some of the space they had. You know, they just weren't hungry for the high fat, high sugar foods. And that's where the idea for the spoil system came from is that, you know, we could say like it could cause sleep problems. So just replace screen time with anything. But if we looked at, you know, the 50, 75 years that we have of child development research, what I'm trying to say and going into greater detail in the book about is these are the five things that time and time again, research shows is really key to children's physical, social, emotional, cognitive development. Um, and the, the real problem here with screen time might be that as screen time goes up, time spent in each of these five categories goes down. And so screen time is just sort of displacing some of the things that we have long known to be the building blocks of, of child development. So I'll, I'll tell you what SPOIL stands for, and then we can kind of go through them one by one. Um, so S is social, social activities. P is play. O is outdoor time. I is independent work, like chores and homework, and L is literacy-based activities. Anything reading, writing, listening to stories, listening to CD stories, that, that sort of stuff. Um, 
So the research shows the more time kids spend um, with screens, the less time they spend interacting with their siblings, their parents, um, and their friends, even for teenagers. And so we want to kind of keep an eye on that and just increase the opportunities that we have available for them to engage in, in social interaction where they learn, you know, how to take other people's perspectives, how to have, you know, and develop empathy, how to deal with competition and how to cooperate with others and, and all of those sorts of things. So that just means finding things that you like to do with your kid or that your kid likes to do with your other kid or, you know, opportunities if you have them um, in the neighborhood. Um, but, it, you know, it's an open category, right? Like it, it's, it doesn't have to be anything specific. It's just time with other people. Um, go ahead. I was just going to ask, because I think this is probably the biggest one where we saw a shift. And I know we lived, live, I still live here, in an area where we had some pretty strong lockdowns for very long periods of time. Of It was us for months at a time. And, you know, and so when I look back at why did our screen time rise? Well, I can tell you exactly that there was no going out to see other people. Libraries were closed. You couldn't go to all kids activities finished. I mean, it really got to a point where you're just trying to survive uh, as you go through. So when we think about the effects of this, and I know that's been discussed in and of itself with respect to COVID and kids, but what can parents do? Like, what is the, is there something specific they could be doing now to kind of help make up for these years of, of kind of the lack of really peer social interactions, I would say are probably the ones that got lost out on the most. Um, what, what can we do? Yeah. So I think one thing we want to do is just acknowledge that our kids have had a loss there. Um, and we've had a loss and like, it's okay if we, if they have feelings about it and we have feelings about it um, and that it doesn't feel great right away. Right. So if you have a kid, depending on their age, where they would have had kind of a social explosion, like a three or four year old um, that instead had like a isolation explosion, you know, when they start to socialize with other kids, it may not always go great. And that's okay. And you're thinking like, why is my six-year-old, you know, being a jerk or, you know, whatever they're doing. Like, because your six-year-old is actually socially with other kids, at least, kind of like a four-year-old. So it's okay. Give them space. Walk them through it. Parent the kid you have, right? Not, not the kid that you're expecting because they may be wicked smart in other areas because of the pandemic that they got like more social time with you or, or whatever. Um, they got more of something in, the, in that time. And this might be a little bit of an, or they have anxiety about being around other kids. They're like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to play with other kids. Um, you know, that's okay. You know, they got messaging that they couldn't by people they really respected for a long time. So like, it's okay to play with other kids. And sometimes we go to things and we're not really sure if we want to do them and then we get there and we enjoy them. So let's give it a try. Let's see, right? Let's find your niche. So just, you know, kind of going slow and, and recognizing that they had a loss and they might need a little more help. I like that because that's, yeah, it is funny because I do, I, I look at my six-year-old and very socially, much younger, um, just a very immature, which sounds weird to say because he's six, like what kind of level of maturity is anyone expecting? But relatively speaking, it's very different than, you know, my daughter who was not going through this and was older at the time and could understand and, and 
have other interactions. So, and in this case, I mean, I guess it goes back to what we talked about with the the Zoom and those social-based ones. For older kids, that really was probably a saving grace that they had those means of interaction and time together, correct? Absolutely. And I really encourage parents, like direct interaction is great. Mindless social media use, not great. It might be associated with more anxiety and depression, body image issues for girls. Like, so we really want to facilitate and, and encourage them to use media in all the ways you used it when you were a kid, even though we didn't have these cool phones, which was to directly connect with other people and like facilitate those relationships, but not so much just to like stand on the outskirts and watch what everybody else is doing and feel bad about yourself. Kind of like how we all use it as parents and, and look at everything. <laughs> Okay. So, like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with the whole social realm, um, you know, we talked about overcoming it. We've talked about these social times together for families that have been in things together all for, for two years now. I think it's funny because I felt like I noticed this too, and, and we're starting to shift, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's being together in being physically present in the same house where you're now in the same house for day after day and limited time to even leave. And some people can't even go to the grocery store. And then there's being together in the same house and engaging. And I think there was a lot of blurring for people of we're together all day. I just want a break. How can we overcome, like, how can we register these feelings? Because I hear it. Parents say, no, we've spent the last two years together. But that is qualitatively different than truly engaging together in it from, from the research perspective on development, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I feel for parents, I'm a parent, my kids are, um, one just turned seven and one's nine. And like, we were just together all the time. Like now when I go to work, like the physical building, they're like, What? not upstairs, you know, like, you're gonna go somewhere. And I have like all these big feelings about this. And it's like, guys, this was normal life. But you just don't remember it. Like, people always want places. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, think about things that you like to do. If you don't like to get down on the floor and play, don't get down on the floor and play. Like, what do you actually like to do? And then think of the circle of things that your kid likes to do. And then just look for things that, you know, somewhat overlap there. Like you don't have to go totally into the things that they like, and they don't have to go totally into things you like, but where those circles overlap, those are your positive activities that you can do together. You don't have to reinvent the wheel um, in terms of what you do. And one other thing I'll say from research is that if you do something new together, we did nothing new for two years, but if you can find an experience that's new those are called self-expanding activities. And research shows when we do something new with another person, we feel more connected to that person. So both for, you know, you and your partner um, who did nothing new for two years, if you're like my husband and I, and, and also for you and your kids, like you want to go do something new and different together. That's why all these experience business-based businesses are successful. That's true. I actually, and you said, it's actually, we started gardening because we planned it before the pandemic hit to go the next year. My husband had already built the box, but it became our new thing over the last couple of years that we have gardened. And I learned more about gardening than I think I ever thought I would learn. But I'll tell you, those homegrown potatoes are fantastic. So <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> there we go. Okay. So then the second one here is, you said P for play. 
Yeah. And what kind of play are we talking yeah. about? So uh, I'm really talking about free play, which means your kid came up with it on their own. They direct it. They're in charge of what happens and when it ends, right? So um, I'm not talking about, even though I think they're great board games, and I'm not talking about video games, um, and I'm not talking about um, soccer games. Um, so I'm talking about something that they come up with on their own, their own free play. So for a lot of little kids, this looks like imaginative play, role-playing games, um, you know, dollhouse, miniatures, cars, those sorts of things where they're developing the roles and the rules. This is better for cognitive development than anything your kid could do if they're under six years old. And it's still important for cognitive development for our six to 12 year olds and for us as adults, like play is really important. It's when kids get into a flow experience when they don't, um, they're not really aware of the passage of time and they're like, what, it's been three hours? Um, and, and it's a great flow experience. It means they're really engaged in what they were doing. Um, the challenge with play is that it takes time to develop and it's very messy. And so before a young child will play, they will probably feel bored and whiny. And what I talk about in the book is we really want to give them the message that, oh my gosh, like you are so smart and you come up with such great games. I'm sure you're going to find something great to do, um, you know, and give them that freedom. Whereas the screen is so easy, right? And so like they don't have to do that and we don't have to deal with the whining that might come from it. But once they develop play, it can last for a really, really long time. So here we're looking for your kids to develop their own play scheme. Now, I just have a question because I know it's something people have mentioned to me that happened again over the last few years of kids who maybe because there was so much time at home, so much that it's almost like play that used to be independent. They started seeking parents to come engage with it. And and I think it actually goes back to that social with they would have their playtime on their own, but then they would also be able to engage in that type of play with others. And when they couldn't, it became, okay, I want to bring my parents in. And as you just said, you know, if getting down on the floor and playing isn't for you, that's, you know, for, I, I admit there's a lot of play I don't enjoy. And mm -hmm. But there's times, how do we navigate when we know they're looking kind of for this social and we want to follow this child-directed play, but it almost seems that without anyone, they start to struggle to engage in it on their own. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing is that a child's sustained attention and their capacity for self-directed play is going to grow over time. So we wouldn't expect, you know, a, a one and a half year old to play as long as a six year old, as long as a 10 year old without parental input. So kind of thinking about that in mind and how we can scaffold it. Um, and then the the other piece is to give our kids clear boundaries of, you know, I'm not available to play right now and I will be available in whatever amount of time. Right. Um, you know, and it, it can be challenging for parents, especially if they only have one kid or if they have one, kids that are divided in age and so they only have one like little guy or, or girl. Um, but it's okay for them to play on their own and it's okay to give them the space and it's okay for them to struggle with it. You don't have to play with them all the time. It's Just, great. It, yeah, of course, obviously, but it is, yeah, it, it's hard, I think, because we want to see that play increase. And I think what I witnessed with families reporting is that they almost saw a decrease over the last couple of years is even though their kids were age-wise getting older, the self-directed play was getting less because they kept looking for more parental 
engagement. And I've always attributed it to the, the loss of socialization that was happening elsewhere. So that social need became much greater than anything else. And we're reaching for, okay, whoever I can grab at this point, I'm going to try and, and grab. Um, so I wonder, so what you would suggest, I guess, going forward again for these families where they've seen this decline. Um, so it's not about age and expectation, but they were doing more and are now doing less. Is it the same kind of process of scaffolding that they may have done pre-COVID to kind of build it up? One of my favorite parent, it's not a parenting book, but I think of it as a parenting book. It's called The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. And it's about um, kids who have experienced really traumatic things. Um, so I, you know, judge me as you Bruce will. Bruce Perry, wonderful book. Yes. <laughs> judge me as you will, but I, that, I think that's a parenting book. Um, <laughs> but he talks about this foster mom in this, in this book who, you know, could take all these kids that were really dysregulated in all sorts of ways because of really traumatic experiences. And he like leans into her you know, for, for these, like, what do you do? Like, how do you manage this? And she's like, I just, you know, if they act like a baby, I treat them like a baby, not in a disrespectful fashion, meaning like what they need, I give them what they need. Right. And so now I'm like rocking an eight or nine year old. And that doesn't seem like something an eight or nine year old would typically be doing, but developmentally that was where that kid was at. Right. And so I gave that to them whether it's boundaries or whether it's help with play or whether it's help with, you know, friendships that you think, Hey, by this age, you know, I think like my daughter's almost 10. Like, when do I like stop coordinating play dates? I don't remember doing like my mom doing that for me when I'm 10, but like the coordination of play dates for us has been like, do you, do you want to wear masks outside? Do we wear to how far apart should they like my kid can't do that. Right. So like, of course, I'm still doing that because she didn't get to learn that independence for the past two years. And it's been all wonky in terms of how you coordinate something. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's OK to, to try to reflect on what did they miss um, and how do I help scaffold, you know, give them some freedom, but also support them. I love that. And I love that meeting where they're at, treating them where they're at, because that is, I think, often that when you look at independent play, OK, if they're back to being two with where they're at with independent play, that's okay. You can, just as you wouldn't expect a two-year-old to do it for very long, maybe your child can't do it for very long anymore because they're still harking back to these other social needs and other things that they need from you, from anxiety or whatnot that they've experienced. So that's a really lovely, I'd forgotten about that case, but I remembered it because that's a wonderful book. Hadn't thought of it as a parenting book, but um, <laughs> I can see why you would though. It's... <laughs> Um, okay. So then number three for the spoil, we have outdoor time and yeah, it's yeah. like the antidote to screen time. Like we see negative associations with sleep for screen time. If you get your kid outside in the morning, research shows they're going to sleep better. Like there's all sorts of things that happen. They're physically active. They're getting sunlight on their skin, which helps, you know, set their sleep wake cycle and their biological clock, you know, and the, so there's all their circadian rhythms. And so there's all sorts of things that being outside helps with. Um, mental health as well. You know, we see that even kids who have the most difficulty paying attention, kids who are diagnosed with ADHD do better, um, in tasks that require sustained attention if they've been able to be outside for, you know, an extended period of time prior to it. So it's fighting attention. We know with mood, with both depression and anxiety, that being outside is helpful for those experiences. You know, we are 
or actual, you know, biological organisms that have evolved on this planet. Like we were supposed to spend some time outside. And so outside time really fights a lot of the negative effects we see of screen time. I love the way you just brought up the the fighting the negative effects, because that's what I really liked about some of the stats that you bring up in the book a lot, because it is really fascinating to see that, you know, I, I remember one kind of one, because not fully, but the number stuck in my head that, you know, one hour of screen time reduced something cognitive. It might've been attention span, something by whatever, 7% in this study, but one hour of whether it was outdoor time, literacy increased it by 30. And so you start to see this balance of how this taking away. But I think also what that spoke to me was in many ways, okay, no, I don't need my kid to be outside for five hours a day. That's not what I'm looking for. But if I can find some of this time, it starts to overcome. But I'll say this as someone who's, you know, as you said, way up there. Um, there are seasonal variations in this, right? And that also becomes hard. I think we see this fluctuation. And I'm just curious. I accept the seasonal variations. I have a son that hates the cold. Um, this winter in particular has been, we do our best to get out even when it's cold, but we've had Every week, there's been warnings of don't go out, extreme cold, don't leave your pets out, all this kind of stuff. So we don't navigate that well. But in the summer, our kids are outside for probably minimum five to six hours a day, um, probably even more. But that's just how we we go. But when I think then about screen time and everything how much in terms of the development do we see it needing to be a steady thing versus, okay, maybe there's more in winter and then spring it goes down and there's almost none in summer and then it goes back up. Is that, can we look at it at that kind of larger range of overall, what are they doing? Or is it really something that we have to say, no, even in winter, just keep it to really low or something like that? There's so many answers to that question. I mean, the one thing is that we know by looking at individual differences in research that there are kids that they label orchids and kids that they label dandelions, right? So the dandelion kids, like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> They're sort of like- talking to someone who does a lot of work on orchids and dandelions. So. Right, right. I've, yep, I've heard you talk about it. Like, so you might have a kid there who has three hours of screen time. I'm like, they're like, fine. Like they turn it off and they go walk and they go play. For an hour by themselves and like they it doesn't seem to affect them and so for those parents like great you got yourself a dandelion and then you have kids that maybe are a little more orchidy right because it is a continuum we like to think of these flowers as like disparate things but it's it's a continuum um so they're a little more orchidy and like they don't do well with two hours you know they're melting down they're irritable they have negative behaviors they're not sleeping as well and so I think part of the answer to that of like, can we look at it as a year and kind of fluctuate more in the winter is really kid dependent, right? Um, but I do think that most kids often have less in the summer. And what that is really nice for is being able to reflect as parents and as a family, you know, what has worked and what hasn't worked and what do we want to change for the, for the next year. I will say that if you live in, you know, a place where it's either duper hot or super duper cold, um, you know, trying to let your kid have some interaction with nature can still give you a lot of benefit. So like, you know, little kids, we can bring, I used to do this all the time. I just bring the snow inside. Like you just get a bowl and you bring the snow inside and like they can do that. And like, it's just like, not everybody doesn't have to put their stuff on. 
it takes forever and it's uncomfortable. Um, or, you know, you make sure that, you know, the, the room they spend in in the morning has some sunlight that comes into it. Or you, you take note of the weather outside. So, like, there's other ways, I think, that, you know, it doesn't mean everybody has to be geared up and out for a two-hour stretch every day if it doesn't work for your family for a variety of ways. Um, but just sort of thinking of, like, natural light and all the sensorial experiences that being outside provides. You know, going, going for a drive can be an outdoor experience if that's a safe thing that a family can do, right? We can look at how the trees are changing or, or what's happening, right? I never even thought of a drive as a sensory experience, but I love it. That's really good. And yeah, it is true. I was thinking too about the natural light that comes in because if you do have, I mean, we're very lucky. We have massive windows in the front and our living room is bright as can be right from the get-go. And it's really lovely. Um, even in the coldest of days, we can look out and be like, don't want to be out there, but we're very happy to be staring at it all in here as we go. But it is good. And that's true. The, the individual differences, I can't believe I didn't mention it because it's something I talk about all the time, but it's true. When I talk to families, the little bit that comes up about screens with families, I always say, well, how is your kid? Because again, if they are melting down at the end of a show and they can't handle it, okay, then they are struggling and we need to look at where does that happen? When does it happen? Some kids can watch one episode of something and be fine. But the moment they watch that second, it's kind of put that, I don't know, addictive type personality coming out and in and that's the issue so looking to your child for these effects and I think can you briefly go over you talked a little bit about sleep is a big one what are some of the other effects that parents might want to look for in terms of kind of that individual differences as to too much screen time I would look at sleep for sure and if you have a sleep problem I mean I don't know welcome to the club um, but but also like anything that you're going to try to do about sleep, you really want to include a plan for how the screen time might be impacting that because you, you almost don't know until you take it out. So so sleep is something you want to look at emotion being emotionally dysregulated. So the screens are distracting because they're so engaging. So when a kid is bored, upset, frustrated, angry, annoyed, tired, whatever, is when they, you might have an emotionally dysregulated kid that wants a screen because it helps distract from that, but it doesn't change the emotional dysregulation. So when the screen goes off, the kid is still emotionally dysregulated and sometimes worse. Um, so you wanna look at, at that. And when I say emotional dysregulation, I mean like there's a, a puddle, like they're crying, they're screaming, they're mad, they're happy, you know, like they're just emotions are all over the place. I would look at their ability to focus even on little things like play, you know, if you're saying like my kid can't play, I don't, they can't play for two minutes. Um, you know, you want to look at how they're spending their time and how they're being entertained and whether um, that might be a piece. I think those are the, the three big ones for, for little kids. Good, good. Okay. Um, sorry, I know we're at getting along on time, so I'm going to try and get through here. I know it's, there's so much here. There is so much that go on here, but um, okay. The independent work. What, because you mentioned homework in this and, and I have to start by asking, at what age are we talking about homework? Because I have thoughts no. on that or, or, yeah, okay. Like 12. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not a big fan of homework. There's, there's not a whole lot of research that's showing that it's helpful. Six, seven hours a day of school is a lot. Um, I'm talking about independent work as something that, you know, just about every developmental theory talks about are somewhere from three to 12 year olds 
a big part of what they're working on is developing um, a sense of autonomy and industry, right? And I can do this thing and I feel good because I did it. Um, and so how are kids getting that developmental need met? Um, you know, for some of them, it is their schoolwork when they're in school, right? Um, or chores, which I know is a tough topic with parents. And we have like way less parents of our generation that require chores of our kids than our parents did. Um, but the research, longitudinal research really supports that children who do chores from a young age um, do have a better uh, sense of self. They're better able to control their impulses. They have better um, ability to get along with others in terms of their understanding of cooperation. Like the Harvard grant study was like, you need to have a good relationship with a parent and do chores, right? Like that was like the big take home from this like 50 years of following people. Um, so, you know, in other cultures, they do start chores a lot younger and they're more accepting of children's bids for help. I think um, we really discourage kids from helping us when they're young, when they want to. And then we try to engage them at 12 and they're like, what? I don't do that. Um, and so, you know, but of course you can start it at any time, but having your child be responsible for some of the teamwork that is being a family um, and, and having a sense of like that they belong in the family and that they matter and that we need them we, because we all need each other and we, we got to work together on this thing. Um, you know, that the psychological benefits of that are just, they can't be overstated. And it's the opposite of screen time. Like it's the, you know, I'm not getting something right away. Instead, I'm doing something I don't really want to do, um, but I know it's good for other people. I am so glad you mentioned the shared family bit, because I think some of the biggest struggles we have, and I know I've fallen prey to it at times too, and I have to catch myself, is, you know, having not been very good with chores with the kids when they were younger. Um, you know, we work on it. And when I, I get to it, I have to recognize that I can't just look at a child and say, okay, you've just got to do this on your own. And I expect you to now do it because they haven't had it. So it really is kind of, again, that scaffolding of, okay, let's go back and we're going to do this together. And we're going to clean up your cars together. We're going to do it that, but I'm involved in it as well, because again, it's a shared family thing, but it also then helps them not feel so I think alone in it. And you're kind of modeling. What does this look like? How do we do it? What is the process by which we we clean something or we fold laundry or we put it away or do it? so I think taking it down to these smaller steps, you don't have to be afraid of it if you haven't done it and you've had a 12 year old with no chores up to now. I think it is about going back and meeting them where they're at with that. They may be, as you said before about the this social bit for kids who have lost out, they may be kind of young in this regard, but they they may be great in all these others, but you still have to meet them where they're at in this particular area. Yeah. And I'll give you a great way to start too, especially if you have, you know, this, this older kid and, you, and it hasn't really been a part is if you have a meal you eat together, um, does everybody have a job around that? And it doesn't have to be that everybody cooks at the same time, because to me, that sounds like a nightmare. Um, but it can be, you know, that Somebody's cooking while somebody else is setting the table, um, while somebody else is letting the dog out. Our dog like farts the whole time during dinner. So that's like a dinner task. I don't know if it is in anybody else's house. Um, and then when dinner ends, like who's clearing the table, who's washing the dishes, who's wiping down the table? Like, you know, that's a real small way to start of we work together um, and we don't just like show up, scarf down the food and run away and somehow 
those plates are clean tomorrow, right? Like we all work on it together. Um, and if people can, uh, you know, kids can develop ownership over a certain piece of it, even better. Not just like what you feel like telling them to do that day, but like this is their piece, right? And they can do it however they want, right? Um, you know, if it means they always get the spoon they like or, you know, whatever weird way they do it because they're not going to do it the same as you. You got to just let that go. Like if the dish is going to be kind of dirty, eh, you know, like to let go of what you can so that they can have some true ownership over it. That is, yeah, I, I, I do love that. And another one I'll just add that we've done before in the past is to just introduce a kind of chore 10 minute time in the evening where we're all going to pick something to do and everyone does it for those 10 minutes. That's all we're asking is 10 minutes of your time. But it may be that you get all your clothes ready to go in the laundry or put laundry away or tidy the floor or help pick up the cups that are all around the house to go into the dishwasher or whatever it is. But it's 10 minutes of everyone's time and we may all be doing something different, but it's all kind of at the same time. So you're not feeling like you're alone doing it, which I think kind of speaks to that setting the table. Everyone's doing it at the same time. So you're all actively working towards something. Okay, we've got the last one here. And then I promise I'll let you go to your kids. I, I'm so sorry. Um, is literacy, which I think is obviously everyone knows, but you know, we kind of forget how much gets taken out with screen time, don't we? Yeah. So the research is super clear on that. Screen time replaces reading, period. Um, you know, the more time kids spend with screens, the less time they spend reading. And we can logically make sense of that, right? These are both um, often individually done activities, um, often done at times when we're tired, quiet, we need to relax, right? And so they're, they're inversely related. But screen time doesn't have all the positive effects of reading um, in terms of, you know, people talk about educational ach achievement and the, the vocabulary and that kind of stuff. But like also research shows that kids who are read to more have a better understand, have a better theory of mind. Like they can understand the perspective of another character in a book. And a lot of that happens in internal dialogue and things like that. So their social skills are going to be um, improved and we don't see that as much. Um, in the media for kids, their, their understanding of that theory of mind. Um, so reading is really important for a lot of ways. And there's a lot of easy ways to plug this in and use it to replace the screen time, right? Um, so your library probably has books on CD. Media is great because you have a ton of story podcasts um, of like people with British accents, which my kids love. They're like a story by someone British. <laughs> Okay, um, you know, so that kids do gain a lot of the, the reading comprehension skills and the skills that they need for reading and, and the social emotional piece by listening. So they can listen. So if you have a habit of screen time and you wanna to try to like small goal, I'm gonna replace like 20% of this time and I'm gonna do it with audiobooks or podcasts. It doesn't always have to be you reading aloud. Small caveat, kids up to age like 14, whose parents don't read to them, still say that they wish their parents read to them. And continuing to read to older kids is associated with them continuing to read independently. Duh, it's like, I'm taking the time to do this. This is a cool, important thing. And so then they, they learn from that. 
I'm so glad you brought up the audiobooks and stuff because that is something that, I mean, we've really embraced in our house immensely, in part because we had to. My daughter has dyslexia, and so her comprehension was up here and her reading capacity to read independently was down there. So it felt a little wrong to say, no, you can only read these little books that will bore you. Um, so we really got into a lot of audiobook series. She's listened to so many. And I sometimes we get confused because it's media it's screen time, it's all this stuff that it really isn't though. I mean, it's, we used to listen to the radio. I've never seen the difference between listening to a story, even if it's not on CD, we don't, we have them, um, we have Hoopla on my phone. So it's, it's, you can download and digitally get it and it's lovely. And it's through our library too. So we just get a certain number per month and it's kind of really good. To, to see that, that it is, we don't have to worry about the media per se. It's the way we engage with the media, I guess, is it. Yeah. And our, our hack is just a real good, durable Bluetooth speaker. Cause then you've got the phone on you and they're like, God knows where projecting a British woman telling a story to the whole neighborhood. Um, you know, like they can run off with it. They can be independent. Um, but you've, you've, you've got the device um, and, and, but they've got the sound. And I'll say the way we actually first introduced it really well, which was great, going back to your whole portability, was car rides. Whenever mm -hmm. we had a long car ride, it was instead of, you know, if you're bored, so to speak, but we would just play audiobooks because we live out in the country. And it's, you know, if we went into the city to visit my family, it's a two to three hour drive. And we would just do audiobooks the whole time. And you know, they don't necessarily have to be the greatest, highest quality of literature that you're listening to, but they're kids, they love it. And they're these stories that they get ideas from and engage with, and it, it's really good. And you mentioned one of your things that I, um, I, I guess this goes back to the engaging with tech was having kids write their own books. And I not in the young age of this did my daughter do it, but she actually did write a book um, with a lot of help, but she used tech for it all because she actually learned PowerPoint. No, not PowerPoint. Um, what's that? Um, the software where you do all the, the, I'm so not technologically adept at all with any of this, but that one where you can edit photos and Photoshop, that's it. See, I said photos. She learned Photoshop for it and took her own pictures. She made her own claymation character things for it and took pictures and then mixed it all. But I did see it was exactly what you spoke about as this kind of budding. I mean, there was so much about thought processes about thinking about other people and all these qualities went into that process of writing because it was thinking about the story and thinking about what people want to hear. And then the art aspect of it going into designing it, it was such a great activity for that. Yeah. And I will say, like we talked about the hierarchy of media, it's like less than 3% of the time that kids are spending on media is being spent on content creation. Um, so 97% of the time they're not doing content creation. And if they're in that 3% and they're doing content creation, leave them alone. That's perfectly fine. Like, that's great. You know, we're not counting that as a bad thing that somebody's Photoshopping and typing a story. Like that is not the same thing as watching YouTube. It's true. And you know, there are because my daughter has a bunch of she's into art. So there's a, a few art apps she has to design and mix photos and stuff. So again, that stuff we don't really, I guess, and it's funny, because that's hard. It goes kind of back to that issue of what is educational, when it comes to 
technology. And I guess maybe if you say something like content creation, would that be our way to say that can be our limit as to are they creating and being creative with what they're doing? And that's kind of our, our educational bit. Yeah, that is very educational um, as long as they're creating. So like there's lots of um, games and applications and programs for kids where they're just like putting a filter on themselves or like doing nonsense and they're not actually creating something, right? Um, but you know the difference. You know the difference as a parent, like writing a story, doing claymation, taking pictures, editing photos, like that stuff, you know, writing, creating something, that's content creation. Um, and if you, you limit the screens um, in the other areas, you know, in this, the, the, the just play-based independent stuff, and you say, but hey, you can create as much content you want. Suddenly you have somebody who's like writing all the time because, you know, it's inherently attractive. And so they're like, well, if I want to use it, I need to be, you know, writing a story or taking a picture. So that's how I'm going to use it. And that's a really good habit to set up. I love it. And that is, and it is, I think, you know, what I loved about the spoil system and I hope what parents get is it's really, and, and I should clarify here, sorry, just for parents that haven't seen the book yet, you give great little examples of each kind of activities that fit into these, because I'll be honest, sometimes I look at this and I'm like, I have no idea how to work this in. That is not at all. I, I don't have the mental capacity for that. So the fact that it's in there is really nice, um, along with a really detailed look at the research on all of this as you read it through. Like it is, this is not a light parenting book per se. Not that it's heavy and hard to read, but it's, this is a research-based book. This is not a, you know, frivolous, I'm just going to tell you what I think works for me and here we go. It, it is based on research. And I do love all these ideas. And I think, you know, my take home from it, and I hope, you know, you can tell me if I've, I've missed it, but it really felt like it was good to say, okay, I can start by taking 30 minutes of screen time and replace it with X. And that is, I'm not getting rid of everything. I'm not doing it all. I'm just starting to fit this other stuff in, however it gets fit in. And then we'll see what naturally happens with screen time. And I think that's just such an easier, better way to look at it. And it felt doable. It, it feels approachable, especially as we look like we're climbing out of the mound of COVID of all these things that feel like such a struggle that we're getting back to. This feels doable. Yeah. Yeah. And you can take one category, you know, for the majority of the book is spent on the solution, right? Like we spent very little time going over the screen time issue because it's gone over, it's been gone over uh, multiple times. But you can take one area like social or play and like that's you're going to read that chapter this month. And that's going to be the thing you're going to focus on um, because you'll get all the research on the benefits you get for each chapter, at least 25, 30 ideas. Um, you know, the research on how it's declined and you'll be really motivated to to kind of make more opportunities for play or for outdoor time for your kid um, and just focus on that for a month or two. And then the next month, you know, you focus on independent work. You just read one chapter at a time. I will say I also just back to your positive thing. It was really heartening to read the positive research. Like I said, it wasn't just the, oh God, the low cut, oh shit, this and that. It was like, oh great, an hour outside and I can get that. Okay, I can focus on getting that because that will at least from, you know, the way my mind works, well, then we've made up for that movie and made up, <laughs> like I can kind of look at it this way as a balancing act as we go through it. And so it was really nice to get that 
positive motivation to go through and make certain changes. So thank you so much for all this work for your, for your advocacy in this too, because we need people who are willing to look at the research and then really bring it out to everyone. Um, if you are interested in the books, the site, obviously screen-free parenting is the website where you can also get a lot of advice and everything. Um, the new book spoiled, right? There'll be links in the show notes if you want to check that out. Uh, and as along with, um, all of Dr. Owen's other work. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for this work. And I can't wait to see what you write next. Thanks so much, Tracy. It was so fun chatting with you. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have, like me, felt that there may be a way out if you're struggling with screen time and also realize how not all screens are created equal. Join me next week as we delve into the question of how we can better understand postpartum depression through a framework that looks at maternal separation from the infant. I'm joined by Dr. Anna Karina Mundorf, a researcher in Germany who has posited an entirely new model of postpartum depression that may hold a key to helping us help families who are struggling. In the meantime, please stay safe and happy parenting.